following the class. Okay, let's take our Bibles and open to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. And while you're turning there, let me also remind you that on your tables there are prayer envelopes. And if you're a new member, you might not know about this, but we have a group of uh, ladies that pray every week for our concerns and our needs. And if you'll simply fill out a prayer request and stick it in that envelope, that's picked up immediately after the class and they start praying for us. And then that will go out on the uh, email as well. Okay, Luke chapter 23. We're going to cover verses 13 through 25 today. Luke 23, verses 13 through 25. Now, Jesus has stood trial uh, on two occasions. He, he stood trial... Uh, he's had a Jewish trial before the Sanhedrin. They found him guilty of uh, being a false prophet, of sedition, claiming that he's Messiah. They have sent him over to Pontius Pilate, who has tried him, uh, wants to release him, doesn't want to get his hands dirty in this case, doesn't want to cause a riot in Jerusalem during the Passover, who passes him off to Herod, who is the king of Galilee, uh, thinking that maybe Jesus broke the law up north and he can handle him. Uh, Herod wants to get, get him off of his hands, and he sends him back to Pilate. Okay? So that's where Jesus is, and now Pilate is ready to uh, deliver his verdict. Now, this scene, verses 13 through 25, is played out in four stages. So here's how we're going to divide it. Stage number one would be verses 13 through 19. This is for those who are taking notes, and a lot of people like to do that. 13 through 19, okay? stage one. Stage 2, verses 20 and 21. Stage 3, verses 22 and 23. And stage 4, verses 24 and 25. You're going to see two parties involved in each one of these stages within the scene. This scene is before Pilate. He's ready to deliver his verdict. In these four scenes, or four stages, you're going to see two parties. You're going to see Pilate, and you're going to see the Jewish authorities, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, who's accusing Jesus. Okay? And Jesus will not say a word. So in these verses, you'll see no red, because Jesus doesn't speak. Okay? It's just Pilate speaking and the Jewish council speaking. So let's read, uh, beginning at verse 13. Stage 1 of this scene. Then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, said to them, You have brought this man to me, as one who misleads the people, as an insurrectionist. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I found no fault in this man concerning those things which you've accused him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him. And indeed, nothing deserving the death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him, and I will release him. So there's Pilate's verdict. I don't find anything within uh, this man that uh, is worthy of a death penalty. And you'll notice several things in this section right here. In verse 13, notice that Pilate not only calls the Sanhedrin together, the chief priests and the rulers, he calls the people together. See, that? that's very important. He's trying to discern what do the masses of the people think about this guy, Jesus. If uh, they are not antagonistic against him, he feels that he can release Jesus 
and have the people on his side. So he'll have public opinion on his side. Second, I want you to notice in verse 14, he says, I find no fault in this man. He finds Jesus not guilty. Not guilty of what? Not guilty of capital crimes. Notice what it says in verse 14. I find no fault in this man concerning those things which you accuse him. Uh, he looks at Jesus. They haven't presented any evidence. All they have done is make accusations. He doesn't look like a raving maniac. He doesn't look like a wild revolutionary who's trying to overthrow the Roman government. Now, I want to say this. I think Jesus wants to overthrow the Roman government. Okay? He wants to overthrow every government that stands against God. But he's not going to do it through force or violence. That's what Rome's concerned about. Are you disturbing the peace? Are you causing people to rise up in arms against the Roman government? He says, I don't find him guilty of any of those things. Anything worthy of a capital, uh, capital punishment. Okay, now third, look in verse 15. He appeals to Herod for support. He says, no, neither did Herod. That's the name to Herod. Say, did he break the law up in Galilee? Herod sends him back. Didn't even send a note with him. Just said, get the, he just washed his hands of this affair. He said, go back to Pilate. So he says, look, I'm not the only one that thinks this guy's innocent of capital crimes. So did Herod. So he has some, he hopes he can get the people on his side. He hopes he, he knows he has Herod on his side. And then in verse 16, notice what he says. He says, I will punish him for a lesser crime. I will flog him. See, that's not a capital crime. Yeah, he's a troublemaker. There's no doubt about it. He's disturbed your, your peace. Uh, he's caused problems in the temple. I'll tell you what I'll do. I will punish him for a lesser crime, and then I will release him. Now, what he thinks is that this will satisfy everybody. But he, he's mistaken. Okay? Now look at the explanation for this action. What action? That he's going to flog him and he's going to release him. Verse 17. For, here's why he's going to release him. For it was necessary for him to release one of them at the feast. Now, you'll notice something about verse 17. And that is there's parentheses around it. Does your Bible have parentheses around it? Is it in your Bible? Okay. This shows you that it is an explanation. It's a commentary on why Pilate is going to release him. This isn't Pilate speaking. This is somebody else commenting on why he'll release him. Because, he says, it was custom or necessary for Pilate to release one of them at the feast. Now, another thing I want you to realize is that Verse 17 is, in, is not in some translations of the Bible. Is there anybody who doesn't have it in your Bible? Okay, there's a few people right here who don't, don't have it in their Bible. Uh, some of the manuscripts, the Greek manuscripts, leave this verse out. And there's a theory that this verse was added later to explain to a Gentile audience why Pilate would be releasing someone during the Passover feast. They don't have any concept of, Gentiles have no concept of a Passover feast. They don't understand it. They live years after, this, this is written, probably, you know, 55 to 70 A.D. Pilate is long gone and dead. They don't know who Pilate is, and so this is some sort of explanation. 
So some people believe this verse was added. Now we don't know whether that's the case or whether Luke wrote it. But in any situation, what you need to realize, it is an explanation of why Pilate's going to release Jesus. And the reason is, in verse 17, it was necessary for him to release one of them at the Passover feast. Pilate has instituted a practice that he regrets, even to this day, I think. And that practice was that during the Passover feast, he would release one prisoner from jail as an act of goodwill toward the Jewish population. Sort of like when the president, on New Year's Eve, gives pardons. And then it's reported the next day and everyone's in an uproar. You know, why do I release that person? Can you imagine if Obama released Bernie Madoff after he was found guilty? So uh, that would please somebody, but it wouldn't please most of the people. But there are people who need to be pardoned. And so he has this practice that he will release one prisoner as an act of goodwill toward the Jewish people. He will release one Jewish prisoner. So he says, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm going to flog this guy, and then I'm going to release him. And Luke says, this is why he wants to release him. That was the practice. Now we get the response. Look at verse 19. Or verse uh, 18. And they all cried out at once, saying, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas. That's who we want. We don't want this guy gone. We want Barabbas to be released. And now we have a description who Barabbas is, who had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city, and for murder. So, when he says, I'm going to release Jesus, they say, wait a second, let us choose who gets released. And we want this guy Barabbas. And he's described as an insurrectionist. Someone who's led a rebellion. The very thing that Jesus is accused of, but he's innocent. And this guy's murdered somebody. Probably an assassin. A lot of times during these feast periods, uh, Gentile revolution, Jewish revolutionaries would come up and they would have knives and they would just go into a crowd of people and they would find a Roman that they don't like didn't like and they would just go. And that they'd walk away from the crowd and that Roman about a second later would just fall over. And this is probably what Barabbas has done. Now what do we know about this guy Barabbas? Well, first of all, when you look at his name in verse 18, we discover that Barabbas is not his name at all. It's not his first name. Barabbas comes from two Aramaic words. Bar, which means son of, son, and Abba, which means father. Now, it can also be rabbi. He could have been a son of a rabbi, or his father's name could have been Abbas, which has a meaning of father. But uh, this isn't his name. This is just a description of who he is. Uh, remember Peter? His real name was Simon. But which Simon was it? Simon bar Jonah. Jonah. He was the Simon who lived in a town whose father's name was Jonah or John. And this guy is the son of another man, either the rabbi in the town or a guy named Abba, who's, who means father. Now, according to Origen, who was an early church father, 
This man's first name was, because he did have a first name, just like Simon Bar-Jonah. He had a first name, it was Simon. Barabbas had a first name, and according to Origen, his name was Jesus. Jesus Bar-Abbas. Jesus, son of Abbas, son of the father. And tradition <coughs> says that he was a messianic, messianic figure. He actually called for the overthrow of Rome and the setup of the kingdom of God, this guy named Barabbas. And he wanted to do it by violence and force. That's why he's a murderer. And he's been arrested by Rome and he's been put in prison. So he was, if he were, was indeed a messianic figure, he claimed to be the Messiah, and he wanted to bring in the kingdom by force, he was caught, and now he's arrested, and they want this man released. So what we have, possibly, is uh, a situation of two messiahs. One who wants to bring in the kingdom by force. You know, Matthew talks about a group of people who want to take the kingdom, he says, the violent take it, talking about the kingdom, Matthew says, and the violent take it by force. That was one theory. How are we going to bring in the kingdom of God? Ah, here's how we'll do it. Do it, we'll overthrow Rome by force. That's the one Messiah. And now we have another Messiah figure, Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus bar Joseph. And he wants to bring in the kingdom, but he's not going to bring it in by force. He's going to bring it in by laying down his life. He's going to bring it by suffering. He's going to bring it in through faith. And so we have this, these two pictures. So in this stage one, we see Pilate and we see the crowd. Now, stage two, look at verse 20. Again, Pilate starts off the scene. Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus again called out to them. That means he probably said the same thing. He said, now look, I understand you want this guy Barabbas, but this guy has murdered somebody, and I just can't release him. But I'll tell you what, I'll release Jesus to you. So he basically tries to release Jesus again and explain his rationale. Look at verse 21. But they shouted, saying, crucify him, crucify him. Crucify him. And this goes into a chant. It's repeated over and over again. And so the audience goes wild and they just chant this crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. So what they're saying is flogging is not enough. Enough. We want the death penalty. And we don't want just the death penalty. We want the death penalty through crucifixion. That wasn't, see, crucifixion wasn't the only way that Rome put people to death. There were many ways they put people to death. But the worst way of putting someone to death was crucifixion. And they say, we want this man crucified. Now, why was crucifixion the worst way? Because it was a very slow and agonizing death. When they crucified people and they put them on the cross, they did not bleed to death. They lost very little blood. You know, Jesus doesn't bleed too much from his hands and his feet. It's only when a soldier you know, thrust his spear into his side later on to determine whether it's alive or dead, the blood comes out. But you don't bleed to death. What happens is you usually die because of asphyxiation. Or you die because your heart just gives way and you have a heart attack. Your blood pressure drops and 
You have all these internal things, and it takes days for you to die. So it's a very agonizing death. And uh, it's a kind of death <clears throat> that when you see it, you never forget it. It would be like seeing a lynching. Yeah, it's one thing to see it on the picture. Another thing to see it on film. That's bad enough. But to see somebody actually lynched and their body starting to shake like a fish as they're being lynched, you don't forget that. And this is what they call for. They call for a crucifixion. It was designed to deter people from ever rebelling against Rome. Rome only crucified those people who were the worst criminals and tried to overthrow the government. And it was designed so that no one else would think ever again about opposing Rome. They would put you on a cross. They'd strip you naked. They'd put you on a cross. And you would hang up there, hang on the cross for days in public, usually at a crossroads, a major intersection. And everybody that walked by, came into town, would see that person hanging on the cross. And they said, well, I don't ever want that to happen to me. And that was Rome's way of saying, hey, this is what's going to happen to you if you never oppose us. And then what would happen is the person would die. They didn't take, Jesus was taken down from the cross. That was not normal. They would just allow the person to hang there and their body rot and the buzzards come and eat their body. The only reason Jesus was taken down because he had a couple friends who said, hey, can we bury him? And it's a Jewish holiday. A Jew should never hang on a cross during a Jewish holiday. Can we take him down? And Pilate said, yeah, look. But that's not usually what happens. So just imagine that these people say flogging's not enough. We want this man not just put to death. We want this man crucified. What kind of people are these? Can you imagine? You wouldn't want your worst enemy to go through this. This is how angry they are. These people are very angry at Jesus uh, because they're going to lose their power. Now look at verse... 22. We get to the next scene. Scene 3. Scene 3. Then Pilate again speaks. Then he said to them the third time, Why? What evil has he done? Notice the question, Why? That's a response to their screaming, Crucify! 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 I said, Why? Why crucify the guy? What's he done worthy of a capital crime? What evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him, I will flog him, and I will let him go. And so again, Pilate, for the third time, tries to rationalize with these people and explain that he's, you know, he's a judge, he just can't do injustice, he's not going to allow that to happen. Look at verse 23. But they were insistent demanding with loud voices that he be crucified and the voices of these men and of the chief priest prevailed. They don't give up. Uh, can you imagine going to the governor of the state of Texas and demanding something? This is, a, this is a mob, you know, out in front of the governor's mansion. He comes out on the porch, and, he, and they just go wild, and they don't stop. That's the power of a crowd, by the way. 
One man against the crowd. I don't care what kind of authority that man has. Guess who ultimately prevails? <laughs> In the end, it's the crowd usually that prevails. Unless the governor can bring out you know, an entire army at a moment's notice and disperse that crowd. So uh, what we have is we have the crowd prevailing. And it shows me that what happens when you have a group of people, in this case the Jewish Sanhedrin and chief priests, who are intelligent people, they're part of the elite within the Jewish community, uh, how hatred can turn people from rational human beings into people who are like animals. It's absolutely amazing that r normally rational human beings can end up this way, and guess what? We can all end up this way if we get caught up in this crowd spirit. So uh, they just throw their reason aside and they demand that. Now, very interesting that you see a progression here. If you look at verse 18, it says, they all cried. <clears throat> they all cried. In verse 22, they shouted. And they didn't stop shouting. It became a chant. And then in verse 23, there were loud voices and those voices prevailed. And so you see that each protest gets louder and louder and louder and goes on and on and on. This thing didn't happen in the space of five minutes. This thing happened over a space of time. Maybe as much as an hour where he's standing out there with Jesus. And uh, finally they prevail. Now scene number four. So Pilate gave the sentence that it should be as they requested. He said, okay. With a wave of his hand. He said, okay. Just like that. Now look, three times he tried to listen. They prevailed. He said, Okay. I'll crucify him. Just like that. This is what's known as political compromise. <laughs> One of the greatest political compromises in Bible times. A decision based on political expediency. And he pronounces a verdict of guilty. Just like that. Guilty. Okay, guilty. Just like that. Get away. Send him off. Now look at verse 25. And he released to them the one they requested, Barabbas, who for rebellion and murder had been thrown in prison, but Pilate delivered Jesus to their will. So, when we look at this passage, we look at it at least initially, we see that there looks to be two opposing wills. Do you agree with that? There's Pilate, he has a will, and there's the Sanhedrin with their people, and they have a will. Okay? Now, let me ask you this. Which of those two wills do you think was God's will? I'm not going to talk for a second. I just want you to think about it. Which one of those represented God's will? Pilate? Or the Sanhedrin? Pilate wanted to let him go. Sanhedrin wants him crucified. Which one represents God's will? Now it's very interesting. If you go over to Acts chapter 3, I'll show you something. Now remember, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. Luke writes Acts. In the book of Acts, Luke uh, records a statement of Peter's that he thinks is significant. 
So go to Acts chapter 3. Remember the question, which of the two is in God's will? Okay? Now when you get to Acts chapter 3, go down to verse 13. This is Peter speaking, and Luke records it. Acts 3.13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the Just One, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. So he comments on it. Right here. Comments on that scene that we just saw. Now, again, let me ask you. Which of the two uh, represented God's will? Okay? Now, question number two I'm going to ask you. You got that in your mind. You got the answer. You haven't told anybody. You haven't told your friend. You haven't told your spouse. You haven't told me. I don't know what your answer is to that question. For those of you who are starting in the beginning stages of Alzheimer's, the question was, which, which of the two represented Bible, Pollock or, or San Pedro? Thank you. Now we know who's in the beginning stages. Okay, question number two. Was it God's will for Jesus to How does that affect your answer to that first question? Was it God's will for Jesus to die? And guess what? We all came to the same conclusion. Yes, it was. So maybe the Sanhedrin wasn't God's will. They wanted Jesus to die. That matched God's will. And maybe Pilate up front was not in God's will. I'm not giving you that as the answer. I'm just throwing that out as make you think. Because God wants Jesus to die. Okay? Now, let me ask you a third question. Is it a sin to put an innocent man to death? Did the Sanhedrin want Jesus to be put to death? Yes. An innocent man? Yes. Was it a sin? Did Pilate give in and condemn an innocent man to death? Was that a sin? Now, wait a second. How does that all fit in? <laughs> See, Sarks gets very confusing, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. So we got sinners at the end, Pilate at the end, and the Sanhedrin throughout, who want Jesus dead, and so does God want Jesus dead, and yet when they put him to death, it's a sin. How does that all work out? That's a difficult issue, isn't it? Now, look over at chapter 4. Let me show you what Peter says about that, and again, Luke records this. And when you get to chapter 4, look down at verse 27. Peter speaking. We won't read his whole sermon here, but here's what he says in verse 27. Acts 4, 27. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Look at this. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles, the Romans, and the people of Israel were gathered together. Now look what Peter says to God. To do whatever your hand and your purpose determined 
before to be done. So it was God's will that Jesus die, and he predetermined it. And guess who he used to bring about his will? Sinners. He uses sinners to bring about his will. Now, I think that Pilate would have liked to have released Jesus. But Pilate's looking out for number one. And in Matthew's gospel, there's one point that doesn't say this in Luke, and I don't like to go back to all those other gospels because I want to try to keep it you know, together here in Luke. But in Matthew, one of, I think the chief priest says, well, if you let Jesus go, you're not a friend of Caesar. Well, guess what that means? You let him go, and he claims to be the king, and you recognize him as a king, then you're not Caesar's friend. You're in trouble. So Pilate's looking out for number one. So looking out for number one causes him to turn Jesus over to the people. And uh, during this whole time, uh, Jesus doesn't open his mouth. And Jesus is the one who really represents the will of God here. Even though he doesn't speak. Even though he doesn't speak, he's the one who represents the will of God. Because he knows what his future is, and it's the what? Die. He doesn't side with Pilate. Why didn't he say, oh yeah, I like Pilate's idea. I think I should, hey, hey, don't you think that Pilate, we should follow Pilate. He's the authority. He's the governor. We should submit to the powers and authorities in our state. He doesn't say that. Jesus keeps quiet because he knows what his mission is. His mission is to die. So in a sense, he's the one who actually represents the will of God without sinning. The other sinned to bring about God's will, but Jesus represents God's will without sinning. Now, what you see here, in summary, is you see three contrasts. Okay? The first contrast is between Pilate and the Jews, and we've just looked at that. The second contrast is a contrast between two kingdoms. One, represented through Barabbas, who wants to bring in the kingdom by force. That's not God's way. And the other represented through Jesus, who wants to bring in the kingdom through suffering. See, look. One wants to bring in the kingdom through violence to Rome. The other wants to bring in the kingdom through violence to himself. Hmm. The Messiah must take upon himself the violence of the state against him. And then they'll say, oh, we got rid of him. And then God raises him from the dead, puts Christ at his right hand, and inaugurates the kingdom, the present aspect of the kingdom. And it's done not by Jesus taking the kingdom by force, but them killing Jesus, and then God raising him from the dead, and Jesus trusting the Father uh, to do that. And so the kingdom comes in through a supernatural act of God. It doesn't come by us pushing in the kingdom. The kingdom doesn't come through by us pushing in the Christian agenda. It doesn't work that way. The kingdom comes through a supernatural act of God. It comes when we suffer and people see us suffering for righteousness. That's what gets people's attention. It doesn't get their attention when we get out there and we just fight, 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 fight. 
All that does is drive them away. And so we stand for righteousness, we take the hits, and like Jesus standing before the cross, we put our faith that God indeed will bring in the kingdom, and he does by raising Jesus from the dead. Now the third contrast you see is between Jesus and Barabbas himself. In Jesus you see the real Messiah. In Barabbas you see a false Messiah. In Jesus you see a person who's innocent. In Barabbas you see a person who's guilty. In Jesus you see a king. In Barabbas you see a crook. In Jesus you see one who's crucified. And in Barabbas you see one who is freed. And on that central cross, the cross that was reserved for Barabbas, ended up being occupied by Jesus. The cross that Barabbas was supposed to hang on that day ended up being occupied by Jesus, and Jesus literally took Barabbas' place, the innocent dying for the guilty. We say the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. And he not only suffered under Pontius Pilate, he suffered for Pontius Pilate. And he suffered for Barabbas. And he suffered for us. And he took our place, the innocent for the guilty. And so what we'll see in the next verses is that Jesus has now been found guilty for political reasons, and he will be delivered to the cross, and he will hang there, and that scene that I described will become Jesus' last days here on earth. And then, of course, on Easter, he's raised from the dead. We'll pick up there next week. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can look at uh, the way you do things. You uh, bring your kingdom in through Jesus' death and resurrection. You do it through a supernatural act. Humans causing suffering and you restoring life and exalting Jesus to the position of your right hand. Oh Lord, help us to learn those lessons. May we learn that the way we live our lives should be lives of meekness, lives of humility, lives of saying few words, lives of living righteously, lives of taking suffering and trusting you for the outcome. Oh Lord, help us to see Jesus' life as a model for ours. Help us to be witnesses of Christ in a world that's living in darkness, in a world that's gone haywire and in chaos. May Lord we see the day, may we see that day when your kingdom comes to earth in its fullness and righteousness reigns. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.